Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, yeah, before we get going, uh, you know, my region is in the news again because we had uh, uh, what they're calling a hybrid cyclone up here, like a nearby town got 430 millimetres of rain uh, overnight and uh, yeah, there's flooding and misery and it's all really depressing and horrible but I just wanted to let you know uh, we're all fine. We live uh, uh, up nice high and dry, we're well stocked for food so everything's uh, everything's good with us but yeah it's all pretty miserable stuff in the New South Wales Northern Rivers but uh, the show must go on and uh, yeah we'll be chatting about all the week's security news in just a moment with Adam Boileau and then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview with Mike Wyasek from Stairwell. Stairwell makes a product that uh, essentially catalogues the files in your environment uh, and lets you slice and dice that data and, and that makes threat hunting pretty easy. So uh, Mike is joining the show this week to talk about why organisations of all stripes should be doing threat hunting. And that might have sounded like a ridiculous proposition in the past when, you know, threat hunt was very expensive and difficult and sort of reserved for uh, companies that had very big teams and socks and things like that. But yeah, he's arguing uh, tools like Stairwell make that whole thing a lot easier and it's something we should do. Uh, It's a great chat. It's actually a pretty compelling compelling thought. Uh, And it is coming up after this week's news segment, with Adam Boileau from CyberCX. And that segment starts now. And Adam, it's pretty funny, right? Because we spoke about Lapsus last week and the whole, you know, the Octa shenanigans and whatever. And uh, I, I think I predicted plane rides north uh, for the uh, perpetrators. Uh, well, it might be sort of plane rides sideways uh, uh, for some of them because apparently a bunch of like English teenagers have been arrested uh, in connection to some Lapsus activity. Yes, the City of London Police said they have arrested seven teenagers uh, in relation to the gang. Uh, just as we were going out to you know, to press last week, uh, there was a bunch of docs being dropped about uh, one of the kids involved. Uh, it seems like uh, he had fallen out with some people on the internet. Apparently at one point he owned a doxing forum um, and then got into a fight with you know, previous hacker crew members and the previous owner of said doxing yeah, forum. Yeah, because like, he, he bought it, ran it into the ground... And then sold it back to the person he bought it from at a huge loss, but then doxed the whole user database like before he handed control back. And then they doxed him in return. Yes, a pretty standard (laughs) kids on the internet being doxed to each other sort of thing. Um, But yeah, we saw some very detailed doxing uh, you know, of uh, this kid and family members and pictures of, you know, him catching fish with his uncle and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, honestly, it felt a little bit like a bit of a bad taste in the mouth seeing, you know, InfoSec pros gloating over a kid getting doxxed. On the other hand, said kid uh, apparently had also, you know, was sitting on $14 million worth of Bitcoin, although it sounds like he's lost a bunch of it, having stored his wallet on a box with open IDP on the internet, which, you know. I don't know. Look, I've got to be honest, right? I, the whole don't dox kids thing didn't quite resonate with me on this one because he's not 10, <laughs> you no, know, and he knows what he's doing. You've got to play these games. This is, this, is, this is a risk that is well understood by people who play this game. Yeah, I mean, yes, and especially if you're involved with some of the really nasty bits of the doxing scene and that kind of thing. So, like, you know, sympathy is pretty limited. Uh, but on the other hand, like, you kind of don't want to normalise people just doxing kids on the internet. So, you know, I, I was conflicted about that one. It's uh, not clear from the reporting whether the kid we're talking about, who went by a white or breach base um, as, his, as his nicks, uh, is one of the kids arrested uh, by the police. But, I mean, given the quality of the doxing, I, you know, I imagine they would be looking at him. But, yeah. 
yeah, we had all been kind of assuming that they were going to be South American kids, and we don't know if this is like all lapsus. We don't know where well, this is related, yeah. but you know, we had been thinking that given some of the you know Portuguese language stuff, and maybe there are some. Uh, in South America, but I mean, clearly well, it's with like this all, all these groups, all these groups have members in different countries, right? Yes. And I suspect that, you know, this is the sort of thing when Okta hit the news last week and became such a big story. This is when the cops round up the usual suspects, right? And maybe bring forward <laughs> some arrest timelines and things like that. Yes. And of course, they're all going to rat each other out and probably there's enough information around to go pull the threads on everybody else. Uh, they have been a bit quiet on their telegram uh, since this went down. So Funny that. You know, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, look, I, I do want to actually talk about the Okta thing because, you know, we, we, we spoke about it last week. We talked about what, you know, in our view, uh, was a pretty poor job of, of communicating what was going on by Okta. Um, but since then, you know, it's been a week and we haven't heard about anyone who's suffered as a consequence of this of this hack against a third-party support provider to Okta. It's my feeling, Adam, that this thing's going to turn out to be a, a bit of a fizzer. And I think it sort of goes some way to explaining the poor response. Like, they, they, it turns out that when this breach was detected quite a long time ago by Cytel, the third party, uh, they brought in Mandiant to do a uh, report. And I think the reason... Okta didn't notify anyone is because they didn't really find anything that alarming in the report. So when these guys started dropping, um, uh, you know, dropping screen caps, it looks like Okta had sort of tried to conceal it, but really it doesn't look like there was much to conceal. Yeah, and I guess it's always, you know, we don't see the inside machinations of these things particularly often unless, you know, we get a, you know, CISO coming on the show talking about their experiences in some detail a few years later. But yeah, the... Uh, we've got a little bit more data about, you know, kind of what the capability of the engineers inside Cytel or Sykes were able to do, like reset tokens, but not, or cause password resets to happen, but not actually have access to the password or, you know, some things like that. They give us a bit more context in terms of what a customer of Okta, you know, should be worried about or should be looking at, which is helpful. But yeah, the... But it doesn't, um, it doesn't look like the, the support engineers were able to do anything to meaningfully further the aims of an attacker, right? And that's... That's the thing. It looks like Okta may have actually put some thought, funnily enough, uh, into providing <laughs> least privilege access to support engineers. I think the thing that I would be most worried about as an Okta customer is like what was in those Slack channels and stuff and, and the ticketing systems that the support engineers had access to rather than their ability to mess with Okta accounts. Yes, I mean I think the only scenario they describe that Okta have described now is if the you know if an attacker was in control of an Okta customer's email and then could use the access from Cytel to trigger the password and MFA reset process, catching that at the other end and in, in the end customer's victim's email and then working onwards. And you know, that is a, an approach that's you know is viable. And we've seen some of the records in some of the stuff that like Microsoft has published about how lapses are operating. I mean that's not outside of their capability, but it, it, you're right, it does sound like Yes, you could reset the, the you can reset the password on an account you can you already control, you know. Yes. Whoop de doo. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, given their methodology for getting initial access via email, and we'll, we'll talk in a second about them using, you know, emergency data requests impersonating police, you know, so it's not completely outside of their modus operandi, but it's not bulk, right? It's not mass, let's just take over everybody in one go. Like, it's a bit more nuanced and involved than that. And I think your point is that 
the the core process that the outsourced vendor was implementing sounds like some thought went into, but yes, we all know that Slack and, and whatever else ends up with heaps of data lying around in it that no one, you know, is pretty ad hoc and you don't know what's going to be in there. And we've certainly seen plenty of attackers, you know, get AWS keys or whatever out of people's Slacks having compromised that. So, you know, um, it does take a while to figure out what the impact would be. I don't know that this is... I mean, it, it's all kind of understandable now that we're starting to see a bit more of it. Yeah. You know, for Okta customers, it's still perhaps a bit, um, you know, confronting. I mean, don't forget, when this broke, the thinking was, oh, my God, Lapsus had access to the full working governs of, you know, Okta. Okta that was yeah. the expectation. And then the, they did such a bad job of communicating this stuff because they were kind of a little bit shifty with what they were saying that they did nothing to dispel that concern, yes, right? Yes. So, so this is the thing. But the more you look at it, the more you think this actually looks like a like a, a, a bit of a fizzer and that there's way more they could have done to turn down concerns. Like they, they, we, keep, we keep talking about these 366 customers who were affected. Like that's what it says in the headlines. They were affected or they were impacted. Those 366 are just customers uh, where Cytel performed some sort of action on their accounts. So to say that 366 were affected, I mean, we, we just don't know. But I'm look, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that not much came out of this. I, I think probably what happened is Lapsus got access, uh, you know, to this Citrix session or laptop or whatever it was, uh, you know, took some screenshots to show their buddies as a bit of a trophy and then realized they couldn't really do that much with it. That's, that's what I think probably happened here. Yeah, and I, you know, I think a lot of people who perhaps haven't been on the, you know, on the offensive side of hacking, of having done this stuff, you know, I've done it professionally, you know, for a while, that, you know, that getting initial access is often the easy part. And then once you get there, figuring out how to turn that into something practical, like your, you know, whatever your action or objectives needs to be, whatever your tasking is, like going from outside to inside to maybe domain admin like you're exercising paths that you already know, right? You're using tools and techniques and approaches that, you know, are common generally amongst organizations. But once you're in an org and you want to understand like, well, how do I now move upstream into Okta, you know, from Cytel or how do I, you know, what audit controls are in place, all of that's specific to an individual org and understanding that does take time, right? And we, you know, when we're doing this, if we're trying to get to a control systems network, you know, that runs a power plant or something, you know, it can take weeks, post-intrusion, like post-DA, to then turn that into, okay, now I've got access to a SCADA HMI or something, right? I yeah, mean, and these guys, these, guys, these guys did get snapped pretty quick. And, yeah, you know, yes. and it's funny that we know Mandiant's in there because that report leaked like a sieve, right? Even before <laughs> Dude, it hit yes. Twitter, <laughs> uh, I, was, I was, you know, texting around sources and uh, they were saying, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen the Mandiant report. And I'm like, wait, what? You know, it was, it was Mandiant. They're like, oh, yeah, everybody's got that report. Like it was the most <laughs> forwarded document in InfoSec <laughs> over the last week. And it did contain much what you'd expect. Uh, they were breached through some, you know, legacy VPN environment. Um, there's a few embarrassing details in there. Like TechCrunch has a write-up saying that there was a, you know, last pass, you know, password dump x.xls uh, lying around on someone's <laughs> desktop. But, you know, Cytel says it was just usernames. There were no passwords. In it, hard to know who to believe, but but either way, like bad security at an organization like Cytel that's doing this third party work uh, doesn't really shock me, and that's no. why you introduce no. least privileged access yes, for exactly. third party engineers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I mean, that's a it is a very hard situation when you've outsourced privileged use. You know, you can't really stop it being used for what you intended, but you can at least audit the hell out of it. You can control when it's used. You can spot anomalies. Like, there's a bunch of stuff you can do with you know, third-party privileged support operations. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm still totally confident saying that Okta screwed the pooch on the on the communication side of this and did an absolutely awful job of that. Uh, but let's see, and I, we will know in time uh, because there'll be announcements and you know news always leaks out. We'll know in time if this had any impact on Okta's customers. But I just, I'm just not so sure, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I think your read is right. But on the other hand, like for us, for Okta customers, like, and I am one, like, um, you know, we have to go spend money and time checking some logs, understanding what's going on. Like, even if there is no impact in terms of getting hacked, right, there's still a very real cost um, in terms of the work that we have to do to provide assurance in our environment. Because obviously, you know, CyberCX, we have access to a whole bunch of people's environments as well because we're yeah. doing work in there. So, you know, th- that flows, that cost flows downstream, even if it isn't a real, you know, a real incident. Mm. All these connections between computers, man. <laughs> I know, it's a terrible idea. We should the have internet. stuck with standalone Amigas or something. Um, so some news out of the United States Department of Justice. They have unsealed uh, uh, indictments against four Russian government officials. Curiously enough, who are with FSB, right? I didn't think this sort of thing was an FSB jam. I don't know how this works. If I visualize the Russian law enforcement and intelligence community org chart, I didn't realize this was their responsibility. But yeah, apparently four FSB people uh, have now been indicted in absentia, of course, uh, for the so-called Triton and Trisis attacks. Now, this was the ICS malware that sought to disable critical safety systems in ICS environments. This was Russian, the Russians trying to blow up things like oil refineries and chemical plants. Uh, I think there was one in Saudi Arabia, one in the United States. So uh, yeah, now we have an indictment and you know that's about as firm attribution as you're going to see. Yeah, the indictment names you know a bunch of people provides um, some write up of you know the things that they're involved in Triton and Tri- the Triton Trisis malware uh, being probably the headline one. This crew was also known as Dragonfly for a while and used a tool called Havix, um, and they've been operating for a while. And I was actually surprised that there's only four indicted. Presumably there are other people in the team because uh, I mean Trisis was a pretty good piece of work. I know I went to um, a, a talk at Black Hat. Uh, 2018, whenever it was like the Risky Biz 10 year anniversary, uh, and there was a presentation there from a bunch of you know uh, ICS security people who had worked on pulling apart Trisis, understanding its payloads, understanding how it you know went after safety critical systems to be able to provide you know real world impact, and they seemed pretty firm that this had been developed you know with some very real ICS expertise, and the wisdom at the time was that this had come out of a you know, some research team in a technical university that had control systems experience as opposed to directly from uh, the FSB. Um, and actually, one of the researchers who presented that talk uh, is from Kharkiv in Ukraine. So uh, seeing some Russians get indicted probably feels pretty good uh, for her at the moment. Um, but yeah, this, you know, the, we spent a long time talking about this back in, in, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, because it was, you know, one of the early examples of real world impact um, well, because this, it was so nasty, right? Like it's yes. very nasty stuff. Yeah, and I think this particular the, this team also uh, were present in um, the Wolf Creek Nuclear Operating Corporation in Burlington, Kansas, that operated a nuclear power plant. So you know we'd we'd seen a lot of targeting of ICS systems, and um, this group was clearly behind a bunch of it, and that married up with malware that can operate you know in ICS environments and have real world impact was a pretty scary thing. So anyway, I'm glad to see some indictments. Obviously, you know I don't imagine they're going to be extradited out of Russia, given that's not a thing. Um, but yeah, they should be on the don't go to Thailand on a holiday list. Yeah, yeah, stay 
away from Disney World uh, or Disneyland. Either of the Disney theme parks. <laughs> Pro tip. Uh, and the Risky Biz 10-year anniversary was in 2017, Adam. 2017, uh, But, you know, I think you were you came the year after. So it That's was 2018 when yes. you saw the talk. Yes. So there we go. What else have we got here? Yeah, Kim Zetta has done an interview uh, with Intrusion Truth. Now, Intrusion Truth is the persona. It's a, it's a Twitter account and a blog uh, that doxes Chinese APT crews. It's a really funny read, this one, because they're kind of... They're, they're, you know, they're appropriately slippery uh, in the answers they give. I, there's there's one part in this interview where Kim just straight up asks them, are you being used to do parallel construction so that the US government can indict some of these people? And their answer is just like, oh, we've got all sorts of members in our collective, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think it's a, you know, it's a, a, like, is it a non-denial denial? Is it a non-denial confirmation? <laughs> I don't know, but you, you're sort of left with the impression that, you know, maybe there is... Uh, even if it's not an official, there might be a nexus with some people who work for the US government, even if they're acting in an unofficial capacity. I was struck actually comparing this interview with uh, the one that uh, Dimitri Smilianets did with, you know, one of the uh, Black Matter or, you know, one of the one of the, the crime crews that really came across as like a, a straight up like elevator marketing pitch you'd get from a tech firm in, in Silicon Valley. Whereas this one is, is definitely more slippery. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Um, yeah, the, yeah. Where, the, where the crime people are being very overt and the, yes, you know, the yeah. people doxing the crime people are the ones who come across as evasive. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, it was certainly, it's interesting read. And the truth and truth, you know, do seem to have a pretty good track record of, of, you know, concluding the right things and then having those things be acted upon, as you say, whether it's, you know, cause or effect, whether it's in parallel, we don't really know. And the answers from the interview really did not, they did shine, not provide Shine a answers. whole butter, bunch of light. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one one thing though, like we had a go at intrusion, tr- intrusion Truth, uh, I think it was on the show, but uh, definitely on the uh, in the newsletter, you know, they, they drew some funny conclusions from some work they'd done. Like when they started seeing Chinese activity in Ukraine, uh, hitting targets in Ukraine, they they concluded that that meant that uh, China was aligning itself with Russia uh, in 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 the war, and that that was a bridge too far, certainly for us, because everybody wants to know what's happening in Ukraine right now, right? So I think they it, it's that's what made me think this is technical people because they did draw draw what I thought was a funny political conclusion from some technical uh, uh, information. Yeah, I mean that, that that does make sense. It did seem a bit thin when I read that particular piece um, of theirs, but clearly they're pretty good at doxing, and clearly they have some good sourcing, you know, yeah. from from wherever they're getting. And I mean, the idea that they are parallel constructing or are just a bunch of you know frustrated intel analysts during the day in classified environments. Well, that's or, that's who I think they are. That's who I think they are. But I wouldn't be surprised if someone from DOJ, you know, occasionally says, "Why don't you have a look at this, you know, forum post on the Wayback Machine from 2012? You might find it interesting." You know, and then yes, away they yeah, go. I, yeah, I mean, and this industry is filled with you know kind of skunkworks, underground social networks of you know people who operate across you know, company boundaries or government jurisdictions or, you know, classification boundaries, you know, because sometimes stuff just needs to get done and, <laughs> you know, you got you got to grease the wheels, you know, there's too much compartmentalization sometimes. So, you know, well, things just got to get done. Why so. do all the work yourself when you can throw a few breadcrumbs at Intrusion Truth and they yeah, do it for you? Yeah, 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 exactly right. And, you know, you so know. that's not even parallel construction. That's just being, <laughs> just being a lazy <laughs> investigator and getting someone else to do it for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Well, you know, if it gets the job done, you know, that's all that matters. That yeah. Out- yeah. Outcome focused. That's us. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got here? So, big announcement in the budget in Australia uh, last night, actually, where the government here has committed something like $10 billion over the next decade to the cause of doubling ASD and tripling its, uh, its uh, offensive capability, uh, which is interesting because, well, first of all, the $10 billion, like $9.5 billion of it is actually just being pinched from defence. So it's not actually <laughs> new spend. So someone is sad and had some toys taken away from them. Uh, but they're calling this whole thing Red Spice. And it's one of those stupid backwardly created acronyms uh, for Resilience Effects Defence Space Intelligence Cyber and Enablers. Red Spice. <laughs> <laughs> the red spice must flow. Uh, yeah. but, but look, I mean, there, there is one thing that I wanted to talk about here, which is, you know, the idea that you just throw money at, a, 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 at an idea of like, you know, let's just double ASD and think that money is the issue there, I think is kind of maybe betrays a bit of a lack of understanding of what the skills situation is like on the ground, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, for that many billions, they probably could pick up a few people. But yeah, for context, ASD is what, like 2,000 people, right? Something mm. like that. Um, and, you know, even if you're only talking about people who are doing offensive stuff or cyber stuff, you know, versus management or whatever else, I mean, that's still a lot of people to hire, um, and as you well, say, and not like just, and, and they're going to need clearances, and a lot of these people need what we call, you know, top secret positive vetting, right? And that's, you know, there's not many people with that clearance. Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, and I guess there's not very many people who can do all of the, you know, rummaging in the trash bins outside, you know, looking for communist propaganda or yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. else. Like that's going to bottle their things. I mean, clearances. ASIO, ASIO only has so many trash raccoon operatives, <laughs> right? <laughs> who can thumb through, pull on the gloves and get into your bins. <laughs> I also wonder with, with the Red Spice thing, like I want someone, obviously we have a listener that knows, like is the name Dune? Is the name... The like Star Wars red, like the 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 glitter stem red spice that the Kessel Run is to go get, or is it because communist you know intrusion, um, you know DFIR people always love everything spicy, and maybe it's just Chinese communist spice. So is yeah. it Szechuan pepper? Is it Star Wars drugs, <laughs> or is it Dune drugs that predate the Star Wars drugs? That's what the listeners really want to know. So sources. You know what to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to get a five-second disappearing message on Signal because you said that yeah, at yeah, some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, it's not just Australia doing this. Uh, we got a story here from Martin Matashak over at The Record talking about US government uh, spending in the cybers. Of course, you know, the US being the US, they're going big and they're going broad. And there's just money for all things cyber uh, in, in the US, uh, you know, forward spending. Yes, I mean something like what ten billion for civilian federal agencies to do some cybering. There's a bunch more for Caesar. There's a bunch more for the Justice Department. So yeah, the the, the money is going all over the place uh, in the cybers in the U.S. government. Of course, like the budget still has to kind of get through the the process in the U.S. Um, but I mean, if they want to throw some more at cyber instead of something else, then you know, I, I guess we'll take it. You know, we'll spend it for them. Yep. Uh, Caesar and the FBI, speaking of uh, the United States, uh, they held an informational call uh, with 13,000 organisations uh, last week and, uh, you know, told them to put their shields up. Um, <laughs> but uh, they really are saying that uh, uh, these organisations should have should lower their threshold for reporting when they see something uh, suspect, right? Which I think is probably, that's, that's actually from the government's point of view, that's a sensible message to put out there which is, you know, don't be shy when you see funny business. 
Yeah, and, and clearly having better quality information is a thing we've been talking about for a long time and anything that helps with that. And we've seen a bunch of things to try and you know support better information in terms of law, in terms of the SEC requiring you know, disclosure information. So you know, getting clear information up so that we can see big picture is really important because you know what we have seen is that the actors tend to use the same techniques, tend to use, you know, reuse what they've got quickly and broadly to try and get best value for money out of their capability. So sharing is just really, really useful and, you know, getting past the we can't tell anyone because it's, you know, embarrassing or we're going to get sued or, you know, legal gets hold of it too early, you know, that's the thing that the culture, I guess, that they are trying to change a bit here uh, by encouraging people to, you know, talk more uh, to the government. But, you know, the FBI is not exactly out there building amazing amounts of political capital and goodwill uh, in the cybers, Adam, because we've got a story here, a couple of stories, actually, one from The Record, one from Cyberscoop. Looking at a Senate report, uh, there's been a, a Senate investigation uh, by the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee looking into the ransomware group Arrival, and they looked at, like, three case studies, unnamed organisations, uh, one big, one medium, one small, and, uh, you know, really trying to trying to get case studies on their experiences, and they all universally had one thing to say which was the FBI were really not helpful <laughs> yeah that's got to be a hard pill to swallow for some of the people that work work at the FBI obviously the FBI is a very big organization with you know a, a lot of responsibilities and I imagine if you phone the local field office you know you're not necessarily going to get someone who totally understands what's going on but yeah the stories that these organizations I think two of all three of them had communicated with the FBI two of them kind of went through the process of asking for more help uh, and then th that was the big one and the medium-sized one um, and both of them said you know that they didn't get great actionable advice to help you know rebuild their organization or to secure it or to improve things uh, one of them got a, a hostage negotiator who had no experience with ransomware or cryptocurrency which probably not super helpful uh, so you can kind of see why they're complaining yeah and it would like they all sort of said that um, basically the FBI was only interested in collecting evidence that they might be able to use to prosecute someone one day they weren't really able to offer any advice on how to help them through the experience right so yeah, and I understand the FBI's job is to catch and convict people, but, you know, maybe we need to rethink a little bit about their role in uh, situations like this. Just a thought. Um, but it's it's good to see uh, uh, committees, political committees, kind of looking into this sort of stuff. So uh, yeah. that's cool. I mean, there are quite a lot of complexities in this, right? I mean, the, the equities calculation for, you know, one of the th things we talked about was uh, when the FBI had the key material for decrypting the ransomware used in the Kasaya attack, and that there was a suggestion that they had withheld that for a while so they could pursue the Revil crew, but organisations could have perhaps recovered faster with that. And, and juggling that kind of equity choice is never a straight answer, but mm. clearly this is a thing where you know political guidance is probably useful rather than leaving it to operational concerns, right, because there's equities beyond, you know, if you're just at the FBI trying to make this choice, right, you don't necessarily have a responsibility for the big picture, you know, in the same way that political leadership do. Well, and that's why I think it's good that we've got, you know, uh, uh, committees investigating this sort of yes, stuff, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. no, it's good. Now, some very sad news, Adam. Uh, I don't know if you heard. I don't know if you heard. Uh, but Finn Fisher, the surveillance software firm that was selling its software to all sorts of bad people, sadly, very sadly, they have uh, 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 declared insolvency. They are dead as a doornail. Tragic. Yes, uh, Gamma Group, Finfisher, and a bunch of other kind of related companies. There's quite a lot of, you know, sort of slippery company shenanigans that appear to have gone on in that group. Um, yes, they've all uh, declared bankruptcy, filed for insolvency. Uh, everyone's been laid off. Uh, and yes, they are no more, which, you know, that's a pretty big scalp. I and mean, once upon a time, you know, they were 
you know, a big player in that. We saw them get hacked by um, Phineas Fisher, you know, back in the back in the day. It seems like a long time ago now. Um, and yeah, now faded away to nothing. So, you know, definitely, you know, a scalp for the people that have gone after surveillance software. And I mean, in Germany in particular, you know, that's a thing that feels pretty bad to them. So, you know, I think there's quite a lot of people there who are happy to see the end of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, look, you know, their demise was certainly accelerated by the fact that, you know, civil society went after them for being a bunch of dicks. So, yes, um, exactly. Definitely good there. Now, this next story comes to us via the Washington Post. And it look, it is interesting information, but I've got a bit of an issue with how it's been framed. Okay, the headline is Israel blocked Ukraine from getting potent Pegasus spyware, right? So the, the, the general thrust of the story is that Israel blocked the sale of NSO group tools to Ukraine because they were worried about pissing off Russia. Okay, that's newsworthy. That's a cool story. The issue that I have is the entire story is sort of predicated on the idea that NSO is the only good option for that sort of stuff, right? And of course, Ukraine has a good relationship with the United States. And look, there are plenty of vendors who sell this sort of stuff. They just don't get the attention that NSO gets. And this is, you know, this is an issue with all of the coverage of NSO. People fixate on NSO as the only actor in the space. Now, certainly, you know, they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, right? But they're not the only one. So this idea that Ukraine wasn't going to be able to fulfill, uh, you know, a need elsewhere, that's the bit I have a problem with. And indeed, there's even a Ukrainian government official quoted in this story as saying, well, you know, we have all sorts of options, uh, essentially. Was that your take on reading this as well, Adam? Yes, it was. I mean, I think certainly the the tie up between Israeli political interest and NSO group like that story arc we've been seeing going on for a while has been really interesting. It's great to have another data point uh, in that. But yes, I mean, NSO group is looked upon like it's some kind of magical unicorn. Uh, and we all know that there are other vendors. So yeah, that, the, you know, the Ukrainians are certainly resourceful. And I don't imagine that they you know, stopped needing that capability and stopped, you know, didn't acquire it somewhere else, as you say, right? You know, they've, they've got other options and I'm sure there's plenty of people that were willing to help. Because the vibe the story is trying to convey is that Israel put Ukraine at some sort of terrible disadvantage by blocking the export of this stuff. But truly, it would not have mattered. Yes, I think so. And I mean, in the conflict at the moment, you know, everyone wants to feel like either they're supporting Ukraine or, um, you know, are trying to find... You know, other people they can shame for not doing that. And, you know, Israel does have legitimate political interests with what's going on in Syria and Lebanon and Russia's involvement, you know, in conflicts around Israel's interests. So, you know, positioning themselves in the middle, uh, you know, is kind of important for them. But I just, you know, everyone wants to pile on anyone who's not supporting Ukraine. And I think that's the angle, you know, looking for things that they can pin that on, you know, as a, ooh, you're not doing your bit to support Ukraine. You know, it makes yeah. for good headlines. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Uh, Kaspersky has been added to some FCC naughty list. I, you know, I think it's, I think really one thing this conflict has done as, as you know, is, has been to make it clear what the risks of using Russian technology are. And, you know, you talk to people in the intelligence community who were familiar with whatever dirt it was that the United States had on, on uh, organizations like Kaspersky, even if there was dirt, you know, I don't know that there was, but they would all say the same thing. You'd ask them, what's the dirt? And they'd all say the same thing. Forget about the dirt. 
it's a Russian it's a Russian software company with a huge install base. That's a risk, uh, given the government, uh, you know, the, the way the government tends to do things in Russia. That's all you need to know. And I think they they did actually make that case successfully, at least to me. But there were a lot of people who sort of resisted going with that. And I think since this conflict has broken out, certainly more people would agree with that perspective. But yeah, basically this this block list that the FCC maintains, uh, it essentially blocks FCC funding from going to organizations that are using technology from this block list. So it's not some universal ban or anything in the United States. Uh, plenty of people can use it. I believe that it you know, it has a, a, a still a fairly large install base uh, in, in certain parts of America. So it won't be you know, banned or anything like that, uh, because that would be too disruptive. But, you know, government agencies that are in a position to try to wind back the amount of Kaspersky uh, in their jurisdictions, they're doing that. Yes, I think uh, to your point of, you know, asking for the dirt on Kaspersky, you know, I don't think Kaspersky really helped that either by so much of their response focusing on like, well, there's no backdoors, you know, oh, you can look at our code and our code transparency centres and like their responses only ever really addressed that technical part. And of course, they've gone out and said, hey, we operate independently from the Russian government, which we all know isn't true because you can't in Russia operate independently from the Russian government. But I, yeah, I just think that the angle of, you know, we'll look at our code, it's fine, didn't really address, the, as you say, the real concern. It's well, nor did, their, with, nor did their, we've moved our data centres to Switzerland, you know? Yeah, yes, like that exactly. Was, like, yeah. they, they really pushed that charm. You know, and of course, as a journalist, you know, you get all of the PRs emailing you and stuff. And, you know, they were pushing that so hard. And I've got sympathy, you know, look, I've said this a million yeah. times. I'll just say it again quickly. I, you you know, I've definitely got some sympathy for the people who work at Kaspersky. I travelled to Russia once as a guest of Kaspersky, had a great time, uh, you know, what was their partner conference, but became their sort of, uh, you know, their big annual powwow. Uh, you know, so many great people uh, in that company. But, you know, ultimately, the, the risk is the Russian government using Kaspersky as an unwitting proxy. Even if you don't believe Kaspersky's in on it, uh, it doesn't matter. And I think this, um, yeah, this has certainly proved it. Yes, agreed. Yeah, so uh, we've got two pieces that go together really well uh, over at the record. We've got an interview with the Chief Technical Officer at UKR Telecom, which is a Ukrainian ISP, uh, and then we also have an accompanying news story about uh, traffic disruption uh, to that infrastructure, which is uh, they, they are claiming is the result of a so-called cyber attack. But, you know, this is much what you would expect to be happening in Ukraine at this, uh, at this point in the conflict. Yeah, it's certainly a tough time to be working at an you know, internet provider or a telco uh, in an environment like that. Um, you know, I once worked telco, you know, ISP, you know, network operations center, 24 by 7 shifts. So, you know, I have I understand what it's like to have to go crimp a network cable at 3 o'clock in the morning to fix something. But doing it in the war zone certainly is outside of my experience. Um, but yeah, the combination of cyber-based attacks, right? We've seen reports of traffics, uh, you know, traffic dropping of, you know, routes being withdrawn, various bad things going on uh, with service amongst fixed and, and mobile networks in Ukraine. The interview with the CTO of UK Telecom does have a bunch of interesting details about, you know, technicians out, you know, fixing fibre lines, you know, on the front lines, keeping the comms up. And, you know, that's really amazing work. And The, thing, know, I, the whole... thing I found funny is that they were able to do it quicker, <laughs> which not, <laughs> not so much of a surprise, man, when you've got to patch that fibre out 
out in a war zone, you know, you're going to get it done. You, you, your efficiency <laughs> goes through the roof, right? Yeah, you're not going to not going to stop for smoker at the side of the trench for <laughs> for half an hour. You know, you're going to get down there oh. with the fiber fuser and uh, you know light that thing up as soon as possible. Um, but yeah, I think uh, overall he said that um, you know service levels are at like eighty percent of pre-war on average, which is pretty amazing and reflects, mm. I'm sure, a whole bunch of really really hard and important work uh, by telco people. You know, on the other hand, I do wonder, you know, if Russia succeeded at taking out, you know, access to the networks on the ground, you know, through cyber, through kinetic stuff, it only ratchets up the pressure on Starlink that we were talking about last week. Yeah, I, I, I did find the interview with the CTO interesting too, because they were essentially saying, like, this would be, it would be hard to completely knock them offline, right? So it's a, it's, you know, it's a sober, interesting, balanced um kind yes, of interview. It's pretty, not the usual yeah. sort of propaganda we're seeing come out of Ukraine, which is just like, you know, our packets are blazing and everything is great. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Glory to our routers. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um yeah, nice, uh, nice sober ride up there. Hey everyone, sorry to butt in here. Uh, just need to add a content warning to this part of the episode because we're about to discuss a topic in which uh, discussion of suicide uh, comes up. So if that's not something you want to hear, uh, please do skip ahead five minutes. Uh, now, you mentioned this story earlier, and yeah, there is, it looks like maybe a bit of a lapsus nexus with it, but it's a blockbuster report from Brian Krebs over at Krebs on Security, and it combines, you know, excellent an excellent bit of news uh, with some good old-fashioned uh, uh, Krebsing. Basically, he's discovered that uh, attackers are issuing fake uh, requests, emergency data requests from service providers whether that's social uh, social media platforms, streaming providers or whatever. So they're saying, look, you know, we've got an urgent data request, exigent circumstances, you know, they're putting these things on the right letterheads and then they're sending them to these providers from uh, uh, compromised government email accounts, right? So the you know, the platforms are receiving these things, verifying that the accounts are real, they're genuine government accounts. And then, you know, because these exigent requests are often life and death, they are then providing the data uh, unwittingly to attackers. Now, this is a problem that doesn't have a particularly easy solution because, you know, these these platforms have to deal with law enforcement requests from all over the world. And in fact, the cost of them not doing that is can be quite high because again, this information is often provided in life and death, uh, life or death situations. Uh, so look, it's just a really good write-up about how these, you know, social engineers are now abusing a process that's designed to furnish law enforcement with, you know, emergency life and death information. Yes, this was a really sobering read for me because, as I mentioned before, like I used to work night shift at an internet service, right, the largest one in New Zealand at the time. Uh, and I remember getting a phone call like, hi, it's Constable Dave from the St. Luke's police office. You know, we've got someone who said they're going to commit suicide on ICQ. Can you give me the address details associated with this you know, IP address because like someone has phoned the police because their online friend has, you know, committed suicide or has, or has taken an overdose or something. Um, and I remember like I was 20, like it's two o'clock in the morning. I can't phone anyone. I had to make that call myself. Like, is this legit? Is this a thing I should do? You know, we had some guidance about how we should be handling those things. But fundamentally, like, I mean, I was a 
20-year-old making 30 grand a year having to make that decision, right? And mm. that's, you know, I'm sure the processes are a bit more mature in ISPs these But I think, days, I think what's different is that it's gone global, right? So imagine yes. that there's a successful, you know, global New Zealand-based uh, social media platform and you're getting that call from some police officer in Argentina or, yes, exactly, you know, or an right. email or whatever, right? So how do you, how, you know, you, there's even this suggestion in the Krebs on security piece, oh, well, maybe they could funnel stuff through the FBI. But that's how it used to work, right? Yes, it used and that's to be why we the, have the yeah, fast process now. Exactly, you know? because it used to be done through MLAT treaties and you'd be lucky to get a reply back in uh, 18 months. The only front page story I ever had in my career where I got the front page above the fold, thank you very much, in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age uh, was a story about that where the, the Assistant Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police gave me very strong on-the-record comments saying someone's going to die unless this changes. And in particular, they were criticising Facebook who did not have a law enforcement liaison in Australia and this was the problem they were having. So I think, you know, this is not really a solvable problem. No, no, it's not. And, you know, but that's not good either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think at least amongst the underground, there was some understanding that this was a pretty high-risk play um, because of the consequences and because of the extremely low amount of, you know, tolerance that anyone's going to have when this gets discovered as having been done. Like, abusing this process is just very, very... You know, it's very rude, um, and I don't think anyone is going to go lightly on people who are caught doing this. So you know, that's one benefit, I guess. You know, sending a strong deterrence message through prosecuting perhaps is something. But as you say, like this is just a you know a a, w a wicked problem, is what Peter Goodman would call it. Yeah. You know, where we just don't have an answer, and there's no technical thing we can do. There's not a you know legal thing we can do. Like this is just sometimes. This stuff just has to happen quickly. You know, availability is more important than confidentiality and integrity in this case. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know all the stuff about Doxbin, that's in Krebs's article, and it looks like a lot of the people that they're talking about in here, you know, doing this sort of stuff, kind of connect to that whole lapsus scene and whatever. Although Krebs said he's not sure that uh, White or Evelyn were actually arrested as part of that UK action. But anyway, it's a great story. It's a wild ride. Everybody should go to this week's show notes and check it out. Moving on to some uh, more bread and butter InfoSec news. There is Chrome O'Day everywhere, man. It is raining Chrome O'Day. Uh, the North Koreans have been uh, using it on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Google's put out a, a couple of Chrome patches this week, which you're definitely going to want to apply because, as, as Pat says, O'Day in the wild. Um, the, the North Korean crew, I think it's the ones that were doing the, like, job ads and... Yeah, the ones who were going you know, after O'Days, turns out. And, they, and the they ones got who were going some. After <laughs> going after researchers. So, yeah, they must yeah. have successfully popped some and stolen Silvio's, you know, Chrome O'Day stash or something. Um, <laughs> and, yes, they've been using it in the wild, going after a bunch of people in the, you know, kind of aerospace, defence, industrial world, as well as, you know, cryptocurrency people. Got to fund those uh, expensive North Korean missiles uh, that they've been firing off. So, yeah, using Chrome O'Day, some watering holes, that's, I imagine, probably been quite successful for them. But, yeah, um, yeah Google turned around a patch, I think, in 48 hours for one of the bugs, which is some solid work uh, from the Chrome team. So thank you very much for patching my Chrome. But, yeah, North Koreans get a North Korea, I guess. <laughs> 
They're going to North Korea. There you go. <laughs> uh, but there's a, there's a second one that's been patched as well, uh, which is, yeah, different CVE, no word on who's been exploiting it. But yeah, someone's being naughty with Chromo Day out there. That could be North Korea as well. I just don't know. But um, yeah, definitely, you know, it's worth hitting that little update button on the old Chrome at the moment. Uh, <laughs> so NPM removed a bunch of typo squatting packages. They're describing it as a um, uh, typo squat attempt. But this is stuff that is still going on. I mean, typo squatting first kicked up as a issue a couple of years back and um yeah it's just very run-of-the-mill i mean when this first started well it was theorized that it that it would happen then it started happening and it was big news and now it's just you know a regular occurrence and barely rates as news yeah, I mean, this one was interesting because at least it was automated. Like, whoever was supplying the packages had an automated script for creating accounts in NPM, uploading the packages, doing all of the, you know, the process of that. Well, so that they is, could publish hundreds. That is the DevOps way, right? So yeah, well, exactly, it's exactly right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were certainly targeting Azure-related things, um, which, you know, another place where, you know, rapid, you know, continuous integration or whatever is going to get you some good stuff. So Automation um, and orchestration, man. Yeah, gets gets everyone's shells, just like that. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, another one from Krebs, uh, you know, for, for long-term followers of uh, Russian cybercrime, a story that they would be very interested in is Pavel Vrublevsky, uh, also known as Kronopay, uh, has been arrested in Russia. And this is a guy who has had a notoriously cozy relationship with law enforcement. So he's obviously just gone ahead and pissed off the wrong person. And now he's in the clink and much to the joy of so many people, because like everyone hates this guy. Yeah, he has a very, very long history in the in the financial cybercrime world. Um, and, you know, Chronopay has gone through, I mean, Chronopay, the company or the organization, has also gone through a bunch of forms over the years doing, you know, variously shady or more or less shady things. But, yeah, that's, that's been integral to so much of the early cybercrime world in Russia. And um, one of the things that's particularly funny about this story is that um, somebody appears to have hacked Chronopay, the org, and like nicked a copy of their Confluence wiki. And this guy, Pavel, was um, keeping like diaries and logs and details. He was keeping notes files on a criminal records. conspiracy, as they yeah, say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so there's like, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of pages of, you know, docs of various competitors and people he's worked with and. Yeah, law uh, enforcement that he's cooperating with as well. Law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. So like, um, I think this getting leaked. Uh, I'm not sure of the order of events, but like this getting leaked or published or bits of it, excerpts being published and the detail that he was going into, maybe that is one of the reasons that he's now in the clink is because, yeah, as you say, notes on a criminal conspiracy, not perhaps the best plan. But this guy is notoriously slippery, right? So, I mean, if he, <laughs> if he gets thrown in, in prison for 20 years, not surprised. If he's out next week... Also, also not surprised, not surprised. Right? <laughs> yes. so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's Pavel uh, Pavel Um and he's had a hand in all sorts of like intrigue and, and things, pharma so, yeah. scams, and just yeah, like well, and kind of linked to maybe stitching up a few people who wound up being imprisoned who weren't necessarily criminals. You know, like he's just he's just not a nice person. So. He's kind of what you imagine when you think of a Russian cyber criminal, you know, I don't want to say mastermind, but I mean, someone who's at the helm of this stuff. But it's pretty much, he's pretty much exactly what you imagine. Yeah, he's like a he's like a skinny guy, looks like a sort of used car salesman and he's kind of like, the guy looks like he's always got sort of wet skin, you know? Like that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's like, just horrible. Uh, and these ones, we're not going to go into detail, but just I had to include them for comedy effect. 
just a rash of more of these like DeFi protocol hacks. Uh, it's really funny. The first one here from Jonathan Grieg uh, over at the record, 2 million bucks got stolen from Revest Finance. Uh, they are apparently unable to reimburse victims. Uh, then there's another one, a flash loan attack on one ring protocol. Nets crypto thief, 1.4 million. Uh, then we got one more here, which is uh, 625 million <laughs> stolen from Ronan Network. Uh, ding, 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 we have a winner. Uh, and uh, we got another one from Vice here talking about how someone stole 50 million bucks from some stable coin called Casio and they're going to like return some of it to some victims. But look, I, I guess the reason I wanted to mention this is there are certain types of attacks that affect these crypto and DeFi platforms and they're all the same, right? There's like these cross-chain ones, there's flash loan attacks. It's just becoming clear that a lot of this malicious activity is converging around a few techniques, which for the people who operate these types of services is actually good news because you can identify where the biggest risks are. But I mean, that only gets you as far as the next technique when it emerges and can wreck you. But, you know, it does seem like there's a pretty established set of techniques to get you money from these people. Yeah, yeah and I think if you were a, you know, a hacker kid now and you wanted to, you know, get your first Lamborghini, this seems like the place to go. This seems like, you know, the, the, turning technical skill into money, this seems like the shortest path these days, uh, you know, rather than all the other, you know, rans ransomware just seems kind of tired and this is the new hotness, right? And, you know, you've only got to find, there's so much money sloshing around. You've only got to find one technique. It doesn't even have to be good. It just has to work once. And if you, you know, if you even if you make up with two million bucks, right, that's still life change money. And six hundred million is probably too much, you know, because then you're going to get into real trouble. But you know, it's just if it's one thing and you just got to get away with it once, right? The incentives really do line up against these platforms ever really being secure because the temptation and the rewards are. You know, just getting just, the money out. Getting the money out's got so much harder though. It right? is. Like it is, it's but very very hard. And and not only is it very hard. But the audit trails, because blockchains are blockchains, they stay there forever. Like this I think I true. mentioned a few weeks ago that people I know who might have done some shady stuff, you know, and had some Bitcoin flying around, you know, and it was all very much under the radar back then. But those transactions are recorded for all eternity. So, mm -hmm. you know, until some statutes, you know, run out or whatever, um, <laughs> there's going to be some people who are sweating bullets, you know, just wondering if some, you know, in the case of Australia, if, if the Australian tax office bothers spinning up some retrospective enforcement unit or something, you know. So I just, I just do wonder, like, you know, the people who operate these services have got problems, but I think the problems for the people who are targeting them are kind of mounting as well. Is what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, no, you you are correct, and the, you know the blockchain, <laughs> for all of the peril it has brought us, you know, at least uh, you know a record going back for all time does have some utility to law enforcement, <laughs> you know, and tax agencies and uh, and everybody else. So, yeah, best of luck to you all, and I think yeah. I'll stick to my honest gainful employment for now. I mean, your best case scenario is that the exchange that you cashed out through got totally wrecked by ransomware and uh, they, <laughs> they destroyed all, the, all of their records, right? So that would be the, you know, maybe you can cash out through an exchange, then ransomware and then them. Then, and then destroy it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, there we go. Solving mm. problems for criminals. Uh, risky business <laughs> since 2007. Uh, Adam, that is it for this week's news. Thanks a lot for joining us. That was a great chat. Uh, always fun to be with you, my friend. And uh, we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Brad. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. 
It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Mike Wyasek from Stairwell. Mike was the co-founder of Google's spin-off turned Google's acquisition, Chronicle Security. But uh, Stairwell is his new thing. He is the CEO and founder of Stairwell. And uh, Stairwell basically catalogs all of the files present in your environment. So you can have some great visibility into things like uh, known and unknown malware, things like that. You can slice and dice the info, apply rule sets and sophisticated searches to it, that sort of thing. It can tell you, you know, you have 200 uh, copies of this file and here are the workstations that it's on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting stuff. It's kind of like, Think of it as like NDR workflow, but for files, not network data. Uh, but you can find them at stairwell.com. I've seen a demo of, of it. I th- I'm not sure if we're actually recording one with these guys, but yeah, I've seen a demo of it and it's actually pretty cool. Uh, but Mike joined me for this interview uh, about threat hunting and uh, why more organizations should be doing it. And uh, here's what he had to say. Most of the systems and techniques that we use to protect ourselves, right? Whether it's EDR, AV, firewalls, et cetera, they all have this this point in time problem, right? Which is basically they have a chance to evaluate something at a particular point in time, make a decision, and then move on. What we kind of realize is you may not have all the information you need to make the correct decision at the point in time when that happens. So what we're trying to do is blur the lines between hunting and detection. You know, we start thinking about threat hunting, that's usually, I'm going to go look for things that are nebulously not quite good, not quite bad. And on the on the flip side, when we're using point in time detection stuff, it's like, hey, this is what I know to be. We want to kind of look in between there. We kind of want to say, where should we be looking? What looks to be bad? What might we not have enough evidence for? Because right now in the absence of information that says something is bad, we, we kind of default to assume it must be good. And that's not necessarily always the case. So as new information comes to light, we may make different judgments. And uh, a core part of the way Stairwell is thinking about this problem is really trying to say, we need to constantly reevaluate what we've already looked at in light of new and emerging information. Because you may find a, I don't know, you may find a driver that was signed by a well-known vendor. And then later turns out their certificate had been stolen, you know, months prior, and that might not actually be legitimate. So new information needs to constantly reinform what's been happening. And we can't always assume that what we have today knows or is capable of detecting uh, what's been there, uh, what's what we know to be bad. So in general, the, the approach is really, how do we blend that together into a platform that gives us the best available information now, as well as constantly evaluate those past decisions in light of new information? I mean, this kind of reminds me of the pitch behind that full packet capture stuff like NetWitness back in the day where you could capture all the data and then retrospectively run new signatures, IOCs, you know, detections across old data. You know, that was very useful stuff. But why is it that these days people aren't doing this sort of hunting. Now, you and I were speaking uh, before we started recording and you mentioned that speed is a big factor and that uh, older tools can just be frustrating to use. For me, uh, one of the general principles is stuff needs to be fast. It needs to be so fast that you don't think about trying to use it. And there's like these small usability things that I think a lot of security platforms don't get right. That if I have to add a two-factor code in every time I want to go log into vendor product Y to, to do a search, my analysts aren't going to do it. They're going to say this is too painful and the path of least resistance will win. You know, I think early on Google made the decision that 
if they made search a tenth of a second faster, they made significantly more money. And it was simply because the, the barrier to entry to do one more search, if that one didn't give you the results you wanted, one gave you more ads, but also two, made you feel like it was less of a burden to actually go over and do that. And so when you start thinking about the usability of systems, right, that also plays a part into uh, how often people will leverage them. Our goal at the end of the day is to try and point you at like right at the things that you should be looking at. How, what are they? You know, if you, every enterprise as in terms of say files has tens of thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands of endpoints, what are the five files that your security team should probably go look at right now? You know, if I'm omniscient and uh, I might have that list for you, but our goal is to build a platform that can focus you on, hey, this doesn't, this is not known to be bad today, but based on all of the signals that we've been able to collect and study and analyze, this is what you should look at next. Um, that's really kind of the, the, the value of where we're trying to get to because, you know, someone's always going to be patient zero for something. You know? Yeah, yeah. No so that's that's kind of something I was going to say, right? Which is like, someone's got to be the first to flag it, right? <laughs> like, you exactly. know, and um, depending on your threat model, you know, that could very well be you. Although, you know, in the world of ransomware, and now we've got, in, you know, initial access brokers using Ode and stuff like that. Like, I don't know, it's something that people have got to worry about a little bit more uh, than they did previously. And I guess what's interesting here too, is you're not talking about doing retrospective scanning on a corpus of data. You, you're talking about, you know, really just keeping an eye open for those things that, you know, the industry might not know about yet. Yeah, I think one of what well, we do, we do keep a corpus, right? Like we're interested in say the executable files primarily that exist on a machine. If there's executable content in something, uh, we would like to collect and store and constantly reanalyze that in light of what's happening. Um, you know, the challenges with doing that is it's a it's hard to collect it all. I want to get it all in one spot. Like that, that's actually itself is a challenging problem. Um, what do I do with it when I have it? You know, simply putting 10 million or 100 million files in a, you know, an S3 bucket and saying, oh, I got them. That's great. Now, what are you going to do with it? There's a lot of infrastructure that's required to pull this together. Um, you know, if you, I don't know if you ever read Hacker News, but there, there's like a, a, a trope. I try to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a trope that comes up there a lot in comments where people are like, you don't have Google scale. You don't have web scale data. So stop pretending that you do. Um, and that's in general good advice for people running startups. But, you know, having worked on this problem now at Stairwell for about two years, like um, Google scale data is not far off in terms of the volume of data that we're building and aggregating and collecting and storing and processing. Um, a lot of the same approaches to how do you manage multiple petabytes of data? Um, how do I, how do I scan and index and search them? Like th these are, these are challenges that, you know, we worked on at Google that you're also having to resolve now in the, I don't know, I would say private world, but Google's a, Google's a company, it's not government. So I'm not entirely sure what we would call, <laughs> but it's a non-Google entity. The non-fang um, world. It's funny, we had, we had Ryan Noon from Material Security uh, on the show a while ago talking kind of about the same thing, which is that there's a lot of stuff, there are a lot of building blocks available to startups now that weren't there uh, even, you know, just a handful of years ago. So you can, you know, you can start doing some of that, that big data, big data, uh, big data stuff. You need like a you need like a soundboard that plays a, a big data. Big data, yeah, like with that. a bit of echo, <laughs> echo and reverb. No, no, that that um, you know, that all makes sense. Um, so 
I guess though, the, the thing is like, at what point do you feel like at what sort of scale, you know, when, when does it make sense? When does it make sense for an enterprise to be doing this? Because I'm guessing for SMEs, they're not going to sit around trying to do this, right? You've got to hit a certain level, a certain inflection point where this makes sense. Like, where is that point? I think the point comes down to it as you can get, like one, it's it's a thing where initially larger customers are going to probably find more value in it. Where you have a, an existing like threat hunting or threat intelligence team, you have a 24-7 follow the sun sock operation that that's watching everything that happens in your systems. You know, they're actively curating and, and feeding the SEM and taking care of it. Just had a baby, so I'm using a lot of the baby analogies there. Sure, sure, sure. You know, those are the organizations that I think initially get the most value because they have the resources to handle it. But our goal here is to basically think about how do we start automating and start bringing that stuff down market? How do we bring that into uh, the medium-sized businesses where they don't have a threat intelligence team? They don't have a threat hunting team. They have people who look at, you know, AV alerts and firewall alerts and, and they look at that, but maybe not even a fully sophisticated SOC. The goal is how do we operationalize all of the data that you're generating and collecting and turn that into something that is actually useful? You mm-hmm. know, if we can if we can have something that says like, you know, this happened here, here's something very similar, but it's not being caught by uh, whatever product you're already well, using. Well, I was I was just about to say, right? Like one of the one of the things that you're quite often going to turn up doing this sort of thing, it's not even like unknown threats. It's just stuff that your, you know, that your other controls failed to pick up, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is sort of a bit of a safety net there. It, actually, that's actually a great way of thinking of this conceptually at the start is it's a safety net. Like I'm not trying to come out and say ditch your antivirus or ditched your 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 uh xdr edr like i'm actually saying keep that stuff right like antivirus, antivirus is just one of those things you know and pen testing is another where you're like these things aren't really driving us forward and it's like yeah okay stop doing them then see what happens yes I mean, like, <laughs> like the fact is they do generate they do stop things and they so if they're actively stopping things and the question is like you're screwed what? with it but you're really <laughs> screwed without it <laughs> It's is it is it like wasn't there a king in uh uh medieval Europe who had like a uh a shirt made out of asbestos and he would show everyone how great his shirt was because he could clean it by throwing it in a fire and then he dies from lung cancer essentially later on in life. Wrong, wrong. <laughs> where, where you're like Is that your hey. is that your metaphor for antivirus? <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. That stays in, Mike. <laughs> No, I, th- I think with the, uh, I, I think when you start thinking about, you know, having that backup, you know, like these are tools that are giving you frontline detection. I hate to say, I hate to use this analogy, but like, you know, when you go to the airport in the US, you're going to meet the TSA. The TSA people who are x-raying your, your laptop bag and making you take your shoes off, they are not the beginning and the end of the defense strategy for civilian commercial air transportation, right? Like they are, they're a part of a thing, but you have to assume that when the airline is booking tickets, they're getting run against government, uh, government watch lists. Now we can get into how good watch lists are in general for, for, for air travel, but you know, they have to have some value and that's backed by who knows what three letter agencies are, are filling yeah. those up and, and this. So what you're, what you're seeing is it's like the most visible frontline aspect of that, but you got to assume there's a whole slew of, of workers and other agencies and stuff put, putting together that larger defense system to try and keep air travel safety. You know, in security, 
AV is the is the is the front line. It's an important part of that. It stops stuff, right? And so I, I won't ever say otherwise. But what is the deeper analysis system? If, if if they're the ones checking your your laptop and your shoes, you know who's the one making sure that you were I don't know not doing weird stuff the six months prior. All right. Well, Mike Wysek, uh, great chatting to you. I think you know you've put together a pretty compelling case there that. Uh, this is something people should be doing, but you know, it's it's kind of hard. You also, you know, pointed that out. It's a little bit harder than it needs to be right now, but um, you know, it's sort of this discussion kind of articul- articulates your vision uh, for stairwell a little bit uh, a little bit more. So uh, that was a great chat, man. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having us. That was Mike Wysek from Stairwell there, and you can find them at Stairwell. And that is it from me today. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 